177, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Hi again. So if you're visiting this morning, uh, I know Ryan's got a, a group of friends here that are here to uh, support him, which I'm stoked about. Um, he's a good guy, and uh, I'm glad that you're here to do that for him. But um, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm the founding pastor of this church. We planted this church uh, just a, a little over a few years ago uh, with a desire to just make wholehearted disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of others in the everyday stuff of life. That's what we're all about. Very simple, uh, very very much uh, just Bible-driven in, in, in what we do. And so um, one of the, the things, though, that uh, has been a blessing for me personally is like over these last few weeks, uh, I've had some of uh, my, my friends and partners in ministry, uh, some, of our, some of our own here, even some of our own leaders at King's Cross who have uh, come in and filled the pulpit for me so I could spend some extended time just uh, praying and planning for the days ahead. And for that, I've been super grateful um, for just the great work uh, that our friends have done in that area. And with that, I want to introduce you guys to my good friend, Ryan. Um, Ryan and I, um, we, we, we kind of served together like back in the day at, at Saddleback without even knowing it. We didn't meet till like day, uh, years later. Um, but you know how like s some guys like you, you'll like a, if a guy sees like a nice car, he'll be like, oh, what kind of car is that? Can I check it out? Or like or, or maybe it's like a watch if he's a watch guy, right? Like, oh, like, is that that watch? Like, like for me, it's theology books. And so uh, at, I was at Bodie Leaf Coffee like a couple of years ago and I and I see this young guy um, reading this like thick book by I don't know, I think it was like Tom Schreiner or Probably. something like that. Um, and I'm like, hey, tell me about your book. And so uh, that's how Ryan and I met. Um, and he would go on to eventually work for uh, Acts 29, 
which is our church planting network that, that we're a part of. Uh, if any of you guys know our story when we planted this church, like our assessment process that my wife and I went through was, uh, was so grueling <laughs> and in all the best kinds of ways, um, uh, just preparing us for the work of church planting. And although Ryan wasn't a part of that process when I went through it, uh, he kind of head up all of that for Acts 29 um, like a year or two later. Uh, and so with that, he's a, he's a smart guy who loves the Bible, who loves people. He's a shepherd at heart, uh, and I'm happy to have him come and share God's word, uh, not only with you guys, but um, for me as well. So I'm looking forward for, to learning from you, brother. Uh, Thanks, let me man. pray for you. Let me pray for Ryan, uh, and then uh, you can have the pulpit. Thanks, bro. Uh, Father, thank you so much for my brother Ryan and the gifts that you've given him to serve your people. Uh, to lead your people, uh, to teach your word. I know just from my friendship with him that you give him truly just a, a shepherd's and a pastor's heart. And so, Lord, as, as that heart overflows with just the study that he spent in your word and just the love that he has for you and the love he has for his church, um, I pray, God, that that us, the, the men and women of King's Cross, would be blessed, and more importantly, that you, God, will be glorified. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. Well, hey, everyone. Um, thank you all for, for coming and hanging out today. Uh, like Chris mentioned, my name, my name is Ryan. We've been friends for a couple of years. Uh, and he referenced a little bit uh, when we met at Bodie and Foothill. It's actually a little bit weirder and more endearing than, than just that. Uh, I had heard his name several times from other friends, and so naturally Facebook that hears everything. Uh, his name showed up on the suggested friends. Uh, I knew exactly what he looked like, having never met him before. Uh, and so this one day, we were both at Bodie and Foothill. Uh, I was sitting at a table working on some stuff, reading that theology book. He was at another table, probably working on a sermon. Uh, and he gets up and kind of walks in my direction. And I say, hey, you're, you're Chris, right? He's like, yeah. And so he sits down and, and chats with me for about 45 minutes or so. Uh, meanwhile, he was actually originally getting up to go to the bathroom. So for 45 minutes, his bladder was screaming at him, didn't say a word. And so if you guys are curious whether or not you had a lead pastor who was self-sacrificial at heart, uh, you, you've got one for sure. Uh, and so, so from there, uh, Chris and I have just maintained a really fun friendship over the years. I, I was working at Saddleback Church at the time as a small group pastor, and so we talked about ministry from very different contexts. And uh, as he mentioned, I worked for Acts 29, so some fun overlap with that friend life part and then the work part too. And so I've heard all these different seasons of King's Cross from, from Chris over the years, um, and his, uh, my, my wife and I have been incredibly blessed by the entire Pobletti family. So when he asked if I would be up for preaching, I was absolutely delighted to. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep this right around 35, 40 minutes or so. Uh, if I go a little touch over, uh, Chris has told me that you guys are actually really kind and generous. So if you're sitting for a couple extra minutes, you can thank him for that. Um, but before we get started... Um, uh, this is the last sermon in your Summer Psalms series, and we're looking at Psalm 77, which we read a little bit ago, uh, and it's a psalm about suffering. Uh, it's about emptiness, but it's also about promises. And to be honest, this is a pretty difficult sermon to prepare uh, for a lot of different reasons, but one of them being is that it's not the most 
uplifting at face value. Uh, I feel like often there's this desire to kind of draw towards some of those topics that are like the, the rally cry for evangelism or, or revival or some of those more uh, redemptive narratives or just the raw, awesome power of God seen in miracles. Uh, and all those are incredible. They, they truly are. I love reading about them, hearing them, uh, being part of them if the Lord blesses me in that way. Uh, but this one goes a little bit more into some of the hard and difficult dynamics that many of people face in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, and so as, as you guys flip to Psalm 77, if you're not there already, I wanted to ask you, have you ever felt so wrung out to dry in all aspects of life and it feels just utterly relentless? Have you ever felt like God is the only one who can truly help but there isn't any kind of answer. And if there is, it's frustratingly unclear. And so this psalm that we're going through, uh, it's a psalm of lament, so it reads with more of a, a somber tone. Uh, there's despair and, and frustration. There's loneliness. Uh, so how many of you guys uh, can relate to at least, at least one of those recently? There's all of that in this psalm, uh, but there's also a lot of hope as well. And personally, I'm actually really grateful that this is in Scripture. Uh, we'll walk through this passage to see how the psalmist handles distance and silence in the midst of suffering, but also what it looks like to, to bring that to the Lord. And we'll see a few ways of how Scripture shows us how to handle those seasons ourselves and how to deepen our faith in the Lord when it might seem like that's the most difficult thing to grasp. And so before we read this passage, uh, would you pray with me? Would you actually pray for me as well? I am a little bit nervous, uh, but if you would pray with me as well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Thank you that you have knit together your word so we can learn about you, that we can learn from you, and that we can know you. Would you reveal your will today more than my own, and would you present and speak first today? Thank you for your church, uh, for this church of King's Cross, and for bringing us here. Amen. So would you read with me in Psalm 77? I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. So my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Did you know that you can ask those kinds of questions? about and to God. The kinds of questions that, well, they question him. 
And so these are some really deep and significant things that the psalmist is bringing here to the Lord. And I want you to know that it's okay to ask those kinds of questions. And as we see in a little while, it's okay to ask those kinds of questions, but just not to stay there. And so let me, let me be honest with you for, for a second. Uh, I'm a person that really enjoys the dynamics of give and receive. Uh, and that's a humbling thing for me to admit, to be honest, because uh, it's, it's not fun to admit that I'm not as altruistic as I would hope to be, that I really like that part of getting some sort of return or reciprocation for the effort that I put out there. And I've been working really hard on this the last couple of years with the Lord. It's still in process. So I'll tell you that when, when I first read this section of this psalm and how earnest he was, but he wasn't hearing anything in response, I was reading this and thought, heck yeah, I would feel the exact same way that he does. And the psalmist here is working really, really hard to get some sort of reprieve. And that's a little bit closer in the original language, it actually reads closer to, in the day of trouble I sought the Lord, and at night my sores extended without wavering. He was pleading to the Lord day and night for some sort of reprieve. That's a lot of time and energy putting into petitioning to God for some sort of relief and answer, a reprieve, and yet none came. And so the parts of me that said, heck yeah, I, I would feel that same way, were actually a little closer to, oh, I, I have felt that same way. And so the, the, the psalmist here is really clearly going through uh, what we would call a season of desolation. Uh, and Christian scholars will refer to the Christian life in terms of, of consolation and, and desolation. And I want you to look at the core of those two words. If you look at console or what it means to be consoled, it means that you have someone there with you to hear what it is that you're going through. There's a sense of withness and closeness. There's encouragement. There's lightness. There's direction. And then, and then think of desolation or something that's desolate. Think of a desert where it's arid it's dry, it is unending, it's treacherous, it is lifeless. And so if we think of consolation, consolation is when you feel the Lord's closeness, when you clearly are able to see the Lord's work in you, through you, and around you, and there's a sense of thriving. Desolation is the stark opposite of that. The Lord feels very distant and withdrawn. There are constant battles, discouragements, discontentments, and there's a sense of longing and waiting and wanting to be out of this season. And all of those are incredibly frustrating things to experience in the first place. And they're frustrating not only because they're seasons that entail some degrees of silence or confusion or uncertainty, but often it ends up prompting having some degrees of questioning our own faith in the Lord. And the reality is our relationship with the Lord and being on this side of eternity, we're actually going to have seasons of both of these. Some of you might have gone through one of these seasons of desolation in the past. Some of you might be in one or, or it might come in the future. Regardless of whether or not it is a then season, a now season, or a down-the-line season, it's really, really hard. And it takes a significant toll mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. 
The psalmist's exhaustion here is so clear. He went as far to say that he groaned when he thought of God, and his spirit grew faint, not strengthened like we would expect. He began wondering questions like, will the Lord spurn or will the Lord reject me forever? Lord, where is your favor? Where is your love? Where is your grace, your mercy? All these things that are promised from your good nature, God, where are they? So look again at those questions the psalmist asks. And in a similar nature, have you ever asked these kinds of questions? This openness to be honest and vulnerable with the Lord about our true heart's posture is one of the things that this psalm models for us really, really well. And it's difficult to remember where the Lord's promises are and whether or not he's going to keep them. But I want you to know very clearly, this passage gives permission for you to express honestly to God the season that you're in. A relationship with the Lord can sometimes feel really difficult to navigate. We, we might have confidence in, in what the Bible says about who God is. We might have that deep knowledge that the Holy Spirit is in us, but we, we don't have a tangible person that's sitting in front of us. And it can be easy for us to sit back on our theology and our convictions, which are, are deeply important and crucial, but the depth of closeness that can come from a relationship with the Lord, it involves extending to Him all the realities of your soul. And in fact, not bringing those hard dynamics of your life to the Lord, it actually reveals some misplaced perceptions on God's character. By keeping any messy, resentful, frustrated, grievous, angry, or, or dark feelings from the Lord, it's functionally communicating about God's character that you don't trust that he's actually going to be gracious or that he's even interested in the first place. Or maybe even that these feelings are, are too far below him, that he'll reject and punish or, or be angry with you for feeling them in the first place. One of my favorite books lately has been Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and if any of you have read it, uh, it's, it's really a book dedicated to revealing Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. That's actually the subtitle of the book, so they really nailed it when it came to titling that. And so I think Ortland does a great job at speaking to the fact that first and foremost, our life is to be dedicated to a relationship with the Lord. So as he's breaking down John 6.37, which says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Ortland expands a little bit more, and he writes, we do not come to a set of doctrines. We do not come to a church. We do not even come to the gospel. All of these are vital, but most truly, we come to a person, to Christ himself. I'll read that again. We do not come to a set of doctrines. We do not come to a church. We do not even come to the gospel. All of these are vital, but most truly, we come to a person, to Christ himself. Developing that relationship requires trust in the person of Christ, and it requires an understanding of his character and his nature in knowing how he interacts with sufferers, with sinners, with the lonely and the outskirted. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
In the Old Testament, they would have a high priest that would stand in the gap between God's people and God. They didn't have the same kind of access that we do to God because they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. And so back then, this high priest would stand in between that gap and petition to God on behalf of God's people. That's what Jesus is doing right now. So his ministry wasn't just in the past. It's something that is still happening and is still going to continue. And so if we think about that verse a little bit more, there's a significant difference in confiding in someone who has no idea the difficulty that you've experienced and someone who has gone through something at least somewhat similar. The odds are that that person who knows something similar, they're a little bit more likely to be familiar with the pain. They're probably going to be more likely to know how to respond and to care for you. And arguably the most important part of all of that is that you're no longer alone or isolated. You don't have to feel like you're a lunatic for having these kinds of feelings. And they're more likely to be able to hold your mess a little bit better. Our high priest, Jesus, he can do those things. He can hold your resentments. He can hold your frustrations. He can hold your loneliness, and he can hold your feelings of injustice. He can hold your suffering and your disappointments, even if they're all aimed at him. Regardless of the situation, we can find hope in Jesus' character to handle us also with gentleness. Hebrews 5.15 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. I don't know about you, but for me, ignorant people are arguably the most difficult ones to deal with gently. I'm far more likely to give them a metaphorical swift knock upside the head with some logic, recorrect all these horrible incorrect things that they're thinking about, put them on a right path. But here's the thing that we need to know. Jesus approaches the ignorant gently, and that includes each and every one of us as well. It's hard for me to imagine that any of us had had everything work out exactly as it should have been when we thought we had it all figured out, maybe better than God did. And so Jesus, not only can he sympathize with us in our circumstances and our suffering, but he can also deal with us gently. Uh, time for a little bit of real talk uh, about me. Uh, this whole topic here is something I had a really, really hard time with for a very long time. Uh, there was a season of my life where this was especially difficult, where it was difficult and hard for me to express the realities of my, my anger and my frustration with the Lord, and also to remain steady in having faith in Him, His character, and His promises. I had a remarkable amount of of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward the Lord, and I had no idea what to do about it. Starting in high school and over the next 10 years, I had 12 people in my life pass away. Virtually all of my extended family members died from some form of cancer or an unexpected incident. I watched a friend die during an ultimate Frisbee game when a rare heart condition stopped his heart. And so every time that my parents would sit me down and tell me that so-and-so has this kind of cancer, I prayed and I prayed that the Lord would heal them, but he didn't. I was convinced that if I prayed harder, that if I prayed more earnestly, that if I prayed longer, that I prayed more correctly, that the Lord would heal them. 
that he would start my friend's heart again, that a miracle would happen and someone would just start breathing after some sort of incident, but none of those things happened. I began to question myself for what I could have done more for the Lord to save them. I questioned what I did wrong to deserve this. And then I started to grow angry at God for taking away the people who I loved. I was an internal rage monster who had only bitterness in me. All the while, I was majoring in Bible, reinforcing and strengthening my understanding of Scripture and theology. In my classes, I learned about historical context and theological framework and and root languages, but all the while, my heart was guarded, it was bitter, and it was lonely towards God. And so here's why I tell you about this season in my life. What I was feeling is what the psalmist is feeling. I asked those same questions the psalmist did. God, where is your love that you talked about? Where is your grace? Where's your mercy? Jesus, where are you? Are you still here? These are the exact same questions that the psalmist is asking. And maybe you've been there at some point yourself. And if you're not currently there's, there's likely a chance that you will be at some point in your life. And guys, it took me years to process through all of this pain and anger. And at the heart of it all, I felt utterly abandoned by God, whom I trusted with my family and with my friends. I was convinced that my efforts and actions would bend the will of God because I had undeniably given enough of myself to deserve the results that I wanted. How easy is it for us to fall into that kind of trap with our relationship with God, where it's solely built on our performance, where our honesty and true reality with the Lord is is dwarfed by our need to prove ourselves to get what we want. That's not what we're called into. That's not what any good relationship looks like. Think about the most significant relationships that you have in your life and picture what those would look like if that other person was fueled by their desire to just prove themselves to you so they can get something in return, where everything they did was just doing stuff for you, where they never knew the person you were. They never tried to understand what made you you. They never tried to experience the kind of care and insight that you can offer to them. And most importantly, to just take delight in you. I think this is often the dynamics that many people have in their relationship with the Lord. But there's nothing we could do in the first place to prove our worth to God that's already been expressed by him on the cross. There was no obligation for Jesus to sacrifice himself on our behalf. It is exclusively out of his loving character to make it possible to be in relationship with him in the first place. And so even in the midst of our own sufferings, the Lord desires our honest hearts and he engages us with gentleness and with grace. The spiritual disciplines are intended to draw us deeper into our relationship with the Lord, not to just prove that we're doing it so we can get what we want in return. So I was reading through this passage in the Psalms and and thinking about everything here. What came to mind was one of the most well-known portions of the Bible, which is called the Beatitudes. Uh, This is where Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. 
And there's actually some really cool uh, parallels to the Old Testament. Uh, Think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, You've got Moses, a a messenger from God, meets with God, comes down the mountain, and teaches to God's people about dynamics of life with, with him, with one another, and the world around them. Except now, it's not a messenger coming down the mountain. It's God himself, Jesus, who's directly teaching to his people about dynamics of life with him, with each other, and the world around them. And I think it's a really beautiful dynamic of what we're called into because it requires being honest and being known by God and also knowing God well enough based on the blessings that he offers. And and so in particular, what came to mind were the first three of the Beatitudes. And I look at the Beatitudes as a set of of postures and a set of blessings. And, And each posture of the heart is matched with a particular blessing. And each posture requires honest knowing of the self and allowing God into those places of your soul. So Matthew 5 is where you can find them, but it should be up here on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And when Jesus says poor in spirit, he doesn't mean that you're poor spirited or not having a backbone. That's not what he's talking about. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean that you're a weak person. It's simply acknowledging that there is someone else who is bigger, stronger, and better than you. And this is really clearly the the posture that the psalmist has here as well, because even in the midst of all the struggles and sufferings, he still cries out to God, Because he has a core conviction that God still holds all authority. Those who are poor in spirit in the deepest and most honest parts of themselves know that they have a need to rely on someone other than themselves. And the blessing that comes with this posture, when someone has this mindset and they acknowledge that they are in need of someone who is more, Jesus says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or in other words, you have God's kingdom extended to you. And when, God, when God's kingdom is extended to you, you don't have to be the one to create the rules, to create meaning, to create any kind of worth or value or pedestal. God's kingdom is a reflection of who he is, which is full of love, it's full of grace, it's peace, joy, mercy, justice, and complete fulfillment. And so if there's a kingdom you're now part of, you are no longer part of your own kingdom. And so if you are now part of God's kingdom, you also need to acknowledge that, that you're not living in your own. And you get to rest in the fact that building your own flawed kingdom no longer rests on your shoulders. The second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning in this sense is actually just the emotional response to realizing that you actually need someone else. When we have this mindset of being poor in spirit, our emotional response of mourning is realizing that what I've been doing myself hasn't and won't be enough. In some sense, it's your pride that's realizing, I got it wrong, but not in a way that makes you kick yourself or shame yourself. So when we realize that there's someone else who is more than us, and we feel the weight of that, the Lord steps in and says the most comforting thing, there wasn't anything you needed to do in the first place. 
I've already done it for you. All your misplaced effort to build your own kingdom, it's okay. Here's my kingdom that you get to enjoy. How great is that feeling when there's a massive task uh, on your plate at at work or at home and and someone just comes in and takes it off of your plate for you? That, That is so relieving. Now put that on the scale of the most significant burdens for life for anybody. The burdens of making sure that you're enough. The burdens of making sure your life is joyful or fulfilled. The, the burden of making yourself legitimate, of fixing yourself. And the burden of making sure you did enough to blot out your own sins and wrongdoings. How significant is it to know that those are now taken off your plate? Uh, how many of you guys have seen uh, Goodwill Hunting? Oh, lots of you. Great. Okay, so picture with me the breakthrough moment in the movie. Will, uh, Matt Damon's character, Will is living his life like most of us, thinking that the more work, the more honorable work that he did, the higher walls he put up and the more strength he exuded would ultimately push him into a different life and give him some sort of value and worth. This is where the entirety of his identity was placed. And then Sean, who's Robin Williams' character, Sean's breakthrough moment with Will when they're standing in Sean's office talking about his attachment issues and the abuse that he endured. Sean looks at Will and says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he presses in, even in the midst of all of Will's resistance and rejection. And so with the great repetitive model here, Jesus is repeating to you the same thing about every one of those massive burdens I was just talking about. Your your joy, your meaning, your fulfillment, your improvement, your legitimacy, uh, your your value, your worth, your sin. Jesus is saying to you, they're not on you. They're not on you. They're not on you. Leave them to me. I'll take care of them. I have taken care of them, and I will continue to take care of them. This is the posture that Jesus had when he willingly died on the cross for us and for our sin. Jesus knew the weight of sin that rests on everyone. And and sin doesn't only just separate us from God, but it has residual effects on us like worry, like pride, like anxiety, like insecurities. And there are so many more effects of sin's ability to sow brokenness in this world. And God knew the weight of the world couldn't rest on anyone's shoulders but his own. And that is why Jesus went to die on the cross and rose from death to pull the greatest weights of sin off our shoulders. And there is nothing that comes close to that kind of promise, which brings the deepest amount of comfort and relief. And this isn't just something for for people who wouldn't consider themselves a Christian. How easy is it for us as ministers, as as pastors, as members in the church to believe that we need to be doing more to make sure that the work of the Lord is being done? How much do we put on our own plates that the Lord never asked us to? It becomes exhausting when we shift the emphasis of the work of the Lord through us to the work of the Lord through us. It's not because of us that we see the Lord's work being done. Now, this doesn't give us license to be lazy. 
We're still called to participate, to be obedient in utilizing our giftings, to developing our relationship with the Lord, but it does relieve us from believing that we're the only ones who play a part in God's narrative. So Jesus doesn't only extend the relief of being our own kingdom makers to people who don't know him, but he extends that same relief to us in our churches, in our ministries, in our relationships, in our marriages, families, in our lives. We can take the deepest comfort in knowing that the Lord is faithful to us and has already expressed that faithfulness by dying on the cross. And the beauty of letting all of this rest in our souls, it leads right into the next beatitude, which is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so when you realize and feel the weight of needing Jesus, the the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, and he gives you the kingdom of God and comforts you by taking those biggest burdens off of your plate, you are now relieved from any kind of pretentiousness or pedestal. And that's what it means to be meek. Being meek doesn't mean thinking of yourself as weak or immature or just letting people walk all over you. In the very first beatitude, it just said, the kingdom of heaven is yours. That's not lowly in the slightest, but you didn't give those things to yourself. Your posture, your position, your importance in God's kingdom, it isn't because of you. It's because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection where he invites you to be loved in ways that you have never experienced before where not a single thing you do will make him divorce you, estrange himself from you, or drop you from his family. We didn't give ourselves any of those things, so where's our stance to think that we're better than anyone or anything? When we posture ourselves as as bigger and have a shred of being higher, we actually close ourselves off to the world around us and everything that didn't quite hit our own mark. And that's why inheriting the earth is given to the meek because they're free from that pretentiousness that would close them off to the world around them. The beautiful and incredible world around them that Jesus holds all authority over, that God created, hasn't lived up to their standards in the past. The world around them that needs them, the messy world around them, the world that needs Jesus, that needs the love, grace, peace, mercy, and justice of Jesus that you can now express to them. Each one of these things in the Beatitudes are completely countercultural when Jesus was teaching them in the first first century, but they're also just as countercultural in our culture today, especially here in South Orange County. Blessed are those who are weak, the mourners. Blessed are the meek, and they're the ones who get the blessings. They're the ones who get the attentiveness and consolation. They're the ones who get the inheritances. That's not how our society works in the slightest. Strengthen yourself. Build yourself. Always exude strength. Never let your walls down. Be a pillar. That's not the people that Jesus is talking about here. It's a challenge to be these things. It's a challenge to be vulnerable and honest and recognize that you need someone more. But these are vital to the economy of God's culture. The importance of all of this is the reality that the Lord is focal. 
And as the psalmist we were reading about earlier expresses his despair, his frustration, and his suffering, he models honesty to the Lord so well, yet he still roots his security in the Lord himself, in his attributes, his promises, and his power. And so I want you to look at the rest of this psalm and see how the psalmist starts to change his perspective, how he reorients from his own efforts and places his focus on the Lord. And so head back to Psalm 77. We'll pick up in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And you can see that he's already shifting from a horizontal assessment of his situation to a vertical remembering of who God is and what he's done. He's going from looking at the world around him, his current circumstances, and his own efforts to look at what God has done and who he is. Verse 12, I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Friends, that is a very different question from what he was asking earlier, isn't it? Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. He's actually referencing when Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt and he led them across the Red Sea. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. His mindset is steeped in the delivered promises that the Lord has already upheld. His posture changed from his own expression of faith acts to the already expressed faith acts of God. He sees the bigger scope of the Lord's work than his own experiences and suffering. And while they may be excruciating and isolating and frustrating, he realizes that the Lord's work is perfect, that the Lord's faithfulness is unquestionable. And the Lord's work reveals his character, the promises that he made with Israel through through Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Aaron. They were all upheld. The command of the earth rests in his authority alone. And so we've seen the psalmist's growth and transition from beginning of the psalm to the end. Now, how do we bring that down to our everyday lives? And how do we respond to this spiritual journey that we see in this psalm? Brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you that whatever season you find yourself in, whether that's consolation or desolation, would you remember these three things? Number one, place the Lord at the center. In seasons of flourishing, it is great grace and faithfulness. In seasons of desolation, it is still great grace and faithfulness that the Lord has done in you, that he's done in his people, and that he's done in this earth. Number two, would you remember the seasons where you did experience the Lord's closeness? 
the ways he clearly revealed his favor and the beauty of the world around you that rests solely in his command. And number three, remember that God's character is bigger than your comfort. And here's what I mean by that, because I know that sounds dicey. Here's what I mean by that. We have a natural instinct for comfortability, and it's protection, really. It's a deep, deep longing for security because when things are comfortable, it means that things aren't in question, that things are safe, that they're where they ought to be to relieve ourselves from expressing too much energy, expense, or time. And yet the Lord works to draw our desires out of us and to place them on himself. And what Jesus had accomplished and purchased for us on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection, he satisfied the deepest longings that we have. The psalmist can turn back and look at God's good works. We can do the same, and the greatest work that he has ever done for us is his life, death, and resurrection. And this is the same kind of counterculturalism that we saw in the Beatitudes that we also see in Psalm 77 and in the gospel, which is to dislodge the focus from ourselves, our own strength, our energy, our own protection and comfort, and to have a posture of need, of longing, of trust, and faith in someone other than ourselves. It's completely countercultural. And remembering that gives meaning to these seasons of desolation, and God meets us with consolation. Your suffering, your pain, your emptiness, it is not in vain. The Lord has a reason for it, even if we don't understand what he's doing with it. And the reality is we'll we'll never fully understand why it is that God chooses when we have these seasons of, of consolation and desolation, but we do need to trust in the fact that the Lord's character and what he has done will serve as a constant reminder that he will continue to fulfill the promises he has given us, like what we read about in the Beatitudes. Let the psalmist serve as an encouragement to bring your heart to the Lord in its fullness, and he'll approach you with with gentleness and kindness and grace. The Lord desires you. One of the things that that my wife's family actually says to one another, I think it's really beautiful, uh, they say to one another, I love you and I like you. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of this in terms of how God sees you. We hear about God loves you often, but do you understand that he also likes you? That the good father he is, he delights in each one of you because he created you. You were made in his image. You're part of the Imago Dei. And so as we go today, remember that we have permission to bring our full, honest, and true selves to the Lord, and he'll draw near to us with all gentleness and understanding. And remember that our honesty and transparency with our souls are what God truly desires from us, and he blesses us in that. But he is to remain focal and centered in all seasons, which is where we see the greatest relief and security we'll ever know. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. 
or meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.